Section 57 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombaugh. Homicide, Part 34, The Professor West Infamy. In Dover, the capital of Delaware, a certain professor, Isaac C. West, Jr., was pretending to experiment with the mysterious gas, one peculiar property of which was that it would cause the removal of the color from the skin. He took care to spread abroad a report that the gas was highly inflammable and explosive, and that in conducting his experiments, he was obliged to exercise great care to prevent dangerous results. One day in December 1872, there was a loud explosion in the professor's laboratory, followed by an alarm of fire. Successful efforts were made for extinguishing the fire, after which some of the citizens who entered the building encountered a ghastly sight. In a charred dry goods box lay the mutilated remains of a man's body without head, hands, or feet. By the charitably inclined, it was at first supposed that the professor had been killed and blown to fragments by an explosion of a retort of the destructive gas. Closer examination revealed evidences that the missing head, hands, and feet had been cut and not blown from the body. Underneath the floor, where the body lay, was discovered a quantity of gunpowder sufficient to have blown the body to atoms if the flames had reached it. These facts, conjoined with other circumstances, and noticeably the disappearance of a well-known colored man named Henry Turner, who had frequently assisted West in his work, eventually aroused grave suspicions of foul play. These suspicions were strengthened when it was discovered that West's life had been insured to the amount of $25,000, his neighbors immediately concluding that he had killed Turner and mutilated the body beyond recognition, as he thought, in the hope that the insurance companies would pay his supposed widow the amounts for which he was insured. It was then determined to watch his communications with his wife and to note carefully her movements, their object evidently being to effect a settlement with the companies and then to retire to some distant locality to enjoy their ill-gotten wealth. After a singularly fruitless attempt at flight, West surprised everybody by unexpectedly returning to Dover and voluntarily delivering himself to the sheriff. He confessed that he had killed Turner, but urged that it was in self-defense, and he also revealed the whereabouts of the head, hands, and feet, which he had secretly buried. After a brief search of the various portions of the dead body, including the integument of which it had been denuded, were found. A coroner's jury was impaneled at once, before which the prisoner appeared. The Attorney General said to West that it was useless to state the nature of the charge that had been brought against him, and if he had any statement to make of his own free will, 
the jury would be glad to hear it. West thereupon, after a great deal of effort to control his almost overpowering emotion, proceeded to make a detailed confession of his bloody work as follows. My name is Isaac C. West, Jr. My age is 30 years. I was born in Sussex County, but had lived in Dover and vicinity for three years. I don't claim to be a physician. My business is to administer gas for the treatment of disease. The killing took place on Monday night, December 2nd. On Monday morning, I was taking a bucket of water to my office, but don't remember the exact time. Turner came along about this time and said, Boss, I'll carry that up for you. I told him I would carry it myself, but had some work for him, if he would do it. He said he would, and wanted to know what it was. I told him I had a large box at Captain Battles. He said he couldn't carry it then, that he was cutting up meat for Mrs. Mullen, but that he would attend to it sometime in the afternoon. I went to Mrs. Mullen's about one o'clock on the same day. Some colored men there said that Turner was not there and had not been there, and they didn't know where he was. About three o'clock in the afternoon, I met him on the street, and he said he was ready then to carry the box for me. He got a wheelbarrow of Mr. Collinson and took the box up to my room for me. I took out my pocketbook in my office in Kerbin's building and paid him 25 cents. He then said, Boss, you seem to be pretty flush. Then he wanted to know if I wouldn't give him money to get a drink. I told him I would if he would go down to the bar next door. He then said that after supper he would come back to bring water to fill my gasometer and would not charge me anything for that, as I was so good to him. We went down together and into the bar room below, and I paid for Turner's drink at Levy's bar. This was when the sun was about half an hour high. We came out together and separated as we came out of the door. Turner said, Boss, I'll be on hand in half an hour. I met him again between that time and sunset, near the post office. He said he was ready to take the water up, but I told him I was not ready then to go up to my room. A short time after that, I met Turner near Hoffaker and Stewart's store on the corner, talking to a colored man. I passed him and went on up to my office. I had just got there and unlocked the door when he came up. I went on upstairs ahead of him and unlocked the room door upstairs and went in ahead. I had taken my gasometer pieces that day, intending to fasten a small sledgehammer to the weights. The sledgehammer was lying just inside of the door. The other weights were over in the corner, about eight feet farther on. One of the weights was a bolt or a piece of an iron axle. It was about two feet long and an inch and a quarter in diameter. I had just gone over to where this bolt was lying when I turned and saw Turner with the sledgehammer in his hand in a threatening attitude. When he found that I saw he was coming, he said, Give me your pocketbook or I'll kill you. I then snatched up a bolt or a piece of axle, and just as I did so, he struck at me with the sledgehammer, the blow falling on my hat and denting the crown. But it did not touch my head, as I was stooping over. 
I then struck at him with the bolt or axle, intending to strike him on the head. But I missed his head and struck him on the neck below the ear. He fell, and I don't think he ever kicked afterwards. This was just after sunset. He fell over on his side. I then felt him and examined his pulse and found he was dead. I did not intend to kill him, but only intended to knock him down so that he could not kill me. After a long pause, the prisoner continued. I then left the body lying there and came up to Fountain's Hotel and got my supper and didn't go back any more that evening. But I went back Tuesday morning, about 10 or 11 o'clock. I then thought I would cut Turner in pieces and bury him. So I cut off his head, hands, and feet with my penknife. Knife he had shown had four blades and was identified by the prisoner as the one with which he did the cutting. I cut off his head and feet with the penknife and skinned the body. That is the knife, pointing to it, which lies on the table. I broke one of the blades cutting the bones. I broke several of the bones with the piece of axle. This was not all done before dinner. I don't know how much I did do before dinner. I went to dinner that day, but do not know the exact time. Do not remember positively whether I was back at my office after dinner or not. In the afternoon, I got a horse and carriage of Mr. Fountain and went out to Hazletville, my home, and came back in the evening thinking to take the remains away and bury them. I got back about six o'clock that evening and brought down the skin of Turner from my office in a water bucket which was about half covered with a piece of paper. The horse smelled it and would not let me take it, so I set it down just inside of the outer door and locked the door. I then brought the horse and carriage to the stable and went up to the hotel and warmed myself. I then thought I would carry the remains in a bucket and bury them. I went back to my office about 8 o'clock and took the bucket, which had the skin in it, and started out on the street with it. I found the ground was frozen, and that I had nothing to dig a hole with. So I turned and brought it back to my room again. I remained in my room planning what to do, and then concluded I would tear a large box I had to pieces and make a box that would hold the remains, for the purpose of shipping them on the Delaware Railroad to some point, and then follow and bury them. I found it was getting late, and I could not stay any later that night. About 11 o'clock, I returned to the hotel and went to bed. This was Tuesday. My foot was hurting me on Wednesday, and I didn't go back to my room till about 9 o'clock in the morning. I found the remains smelling so much that I could not ship them on the railroad. I got my dinner at the hotel that day and was about at different places that afternoon. I returned to my office in the afternoon when I took my knife and cut off the nose and lips from the head, intending to skin it, and also cut some pieces from the abdomen. I then struck the head with the bolt or iron axle for the purpose of smashing it up so it could not be recognized, but found I could make no impression on it. I was afraid if I skinned the head, it would still retain its shape and would be recognized. Afterwards, I put the head in a bucket and took it down to a lime heap near the railroad and rolled it in the lime, and then raked it back in the bucket and carried it to a place where I buried it, using a spade belonging to Mrs. Jones for this purpose. 
I buried the head under a heap of cut briars in the street near the corner of Water Street and the railroad. I then went back to my room about 10 o'clock. I had a candle and two lamps at my office, one for burning alcohol and the other for burning kerosene. I took the bucket and put the skin in it to carry it away, went out on the street with it and saw some person coming when I took it back to my room again. I melted the end of a candle that I might stick the candle on the floor. I took one of the feet and poured some alcohol over it, thinking that by setting it on fire it would change the color of the foot. I set it on fire and spilt some over on the floor, which also ignited. I had previously placed the box over the body and put the small pieces on top of the box. I intended, if the alcohol did change the color of the skin on the feet, to spread the skin out on the floor and change the color of it by burning alcohol on it. But I found that the alcohol would not change the color of the skin. I intended, if the color was changed, to replace the skin on the body and fit it as well as I could. When the alcohol on the floor caught fire, I gathered up the feet, hands, and skin in my hands and got out of the room as soon as I could, fearing the powder I had there would explode. I made an effort to extinguish the flames but failed. After getting outside, I walked to the Methodist graveyard with the feet, hands, and skin. After I had gone some distance from the office, I saw that the fire had gone out, and I started to go back, but I was afraid to go, remembering that the candle was on the floor. When near Mrs. Jones's new house, I noticed the fire flash up again, and I turned and went back towards the graveyard, where I had left the feet, hands, and skin. I then took them up and carried them over into the Methodist graveyard, and there waited until the fire was put out. I buried the skin alongside of the railroad, and then went to get the hands and feet to bury them, when I heard the whistle of the four o'clock down train. I raked some lime over them, and ran up to the depot and waited until the train arrived. When I went on board with a bundle of my clothes, and went to Delmar, from which place I walked to Salisbury, Maryland, on the railroad track. I went to Tracy's Hotel in that place and remained there until this Friday morning, December 6th, when I got on the northbound train and came up to Farmington, where I got off and walked to Harrington. I got on the evening train and came to Dover and gave myself up to the sheriff. I had previously called on a constable at Harrington to deliver myself up. My life is insured for $25,000. $10,000 in the New England Mutual, $5,000 in the John Hancock, $5,000 in the Delaware Mutual, and $5,000 in the Aetna, about half in favor of my wife and half in favor of myself. They were all life policies. I took out the Aetna policy five or six years ago and the others last spring. I never had any previous difficulty with Turner knew him only by the name of Joe Turner, never exchanged half a dozen words with him before that time. I bored the hole found in the office floor about a month ago with a brace and bit. It was intended to set a post in for my retort. The powder, about a quarter of a pound, was put into the hole on the 30th of November. I used it as a medicinal preparation, 
The bundle of clothes I took on the cars with me consisted of circular coat, pair of boots, and three shirts. I bundled them in my room on Wednesday night and put them back of Holland's store and left them in the graveyard until I heard the whistle of the train when I returned and got them and took them to the depot platform. The same bundle of clothes, with the addition of a pair of pants, is at the Dover Depot in a bag I bought at Salisbury. I tore Turner's clothes into strips that they might not be recognized. They consisted of coat, pants, and shirt. I cut the tops of Turner's shoes off and threw the soles into the street and left the uppers with the torn of clothes intending to carry all off and bury them. The front shutters of my office were closed when I left the last time. To this confession, which is verbatim, West appended his name and was then remanded to jail. How anyone with a grain of common sense could expect the public to accept the ridiculous statements and explanations in his so-called confession is incomprehensible. Its only effect among intelligent people was to arouse their bitter scorn and their inexpressible disgust. The principal points developed by the testimony for the state were briefly that the annual premium of $25,000 of insurance at the age of 29 years was not less than $600. That West was always impecunious, so much so at the time of the murder that he owed for two weeks' board at his hotel and was unable to pay it. That he had repeatedly visited one Frederick Windolph, a friend and member of a society lodge to which he belonged before the commission of the crime, selecting him from among his acquaintances because Windolph's height, weight, and chest measurement corresponded nearly with his own, that he was continually maneuvering to establish himself in Windolph's confidence, and that, upon one pretense or another, he made several attempts to inveigle him into his laboratory. His diabolical design upon Windolph being clearly revealed by the murder of Turner, the testimony of Windolph was abundantly corroborated by other witnesses, who recalled incidents which at the time seemed strange, but which awoke no suspicion of ulterior purpose. It was also in evidence that West said he wanted to make money enough in the next two weeks to make or break him. Another witness said that he saw Turner in company with West in the afternoon of the day of the fire. Turner was under the influence of liquor when West treated him to brandy and asked him how much he could drink. Turner took a glass full. They left the barroom together, and Witness was surprised that West should treat a Negro in that liberal way. Witness saw very little money in West's pocketbook. On behalf of the defense, testimony was introduced showing that the prisoner was insane, that his father was subject to fits of melancholy two or three years before the birth of his son, Isaac C. West, Jr. But it became evident that the defense chiefly relied upon popular prejudice against color and popular feeling against hanging a white man for the pardonable offense of killing a Negro. Entrusting to this sentiment a relic or legacy of the old slavery regime, the defense was not mistaken. The state introduced several medical witnesses to rebut the insane dodge, and the case was given to the jury, who returned a verdict of 
not guilty on the ground of self-defense. The leading Daily Journal of the state of Delaware, commenting upon this preposterous verdict, says, All that has ever been said about the stupidity of jurors and the uncertainty of jury trials is illustrated and enforced by the verdict in the West case. We would not have been surprised at an acquittal on the ground of insanity, since we have read the strong array of evidence in support of that theory. But for a jury to disregard this, practically declare its disbelief in it, and then to acquit this man on the ground of self-defense is a performance which we can find no words to characterize, excuses to palliate, or reasons to explain. The prisoner in his own laboratory killed Turner, then skinned him and cut him up, and finally set fire to the building with a view to destroying the disgusting evidences of his crime, and then ran away in disguise, and being caught, confessed his crime, but said he killed the man in self-defense. And upon his simple say-so, a jury, sworn to deliver a true verdict in the case, acquits him on the ground of self-defense. Such a verdict is not only simply preposterous, it is monstrous. It is some satisfaction to know that this inhuman villain did not escape scot-free. Upon being tried for the crime of arson, he pleaded guilty and was sentenced to two years' imprisonment in the penitentiary. His second confession is a virtual admission of his murder of the poor Negro. Unfortunately, a criminal cannot twice be put in jeopardy for the same offense. End of section 57